0: I'd like to read to you this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll be reading through verse 12. Listen to the Word of God. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having thus a fond affection for you we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are a witness, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy and gracious Father, we thank you for this word from the Apostle Paul. We thank you for a window into his mind, his philosophy of ministry, and as we are celebrating the installation of Pastor Sexton, that we pray, Father, that you would uh, remind us again of our priorities, that we might serve you uh, in a manner that would be pleasing and delightful to you. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. want to thank you for allowing me to come back. And especially to be a part of this momentous occasion, congratulations to you on installing Pastor Sexton, and thanks for the privilege of marking this occasion by opening the Word of God to you this morning. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. We are made, and we were called, to bear fruit. We all desire fruitfulness, but not all churches are fruitful. In fact, much that passes for fruitfulness in the world would be considered barrenness by the Lord. And, on the other side, there's much that the Lord would consider fruitful that the world would pass over as um Completely worthless. So, this morning I'd like to speak to you about fruitfulness by looking at the philosophy of ministry of the Apostle Paul. And we see a little window into that philosophy of ministry here in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12. through 12. You'll notice in verse 1, Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. So he's saying... My coming to you was not a failure. It was not in vain. It bore good fruit. And this is particularly interesting because Paul only spent three Sabbaths in Thessalonica before he had to slip out in cover of darkness. (laughs) So in three weeks, the Apostle Paul made a connection with these people and um, that connection by the grace of God brought forth eternal impact. So, how did he do it? And what we're going to discover in the Word this morning is that Paul's fruitfulness was tied directly to his thoroughgoing God-centeredness. And we see it just kind of bleeding out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, his God-focused ministry. So, for those of you who are taking notes or are linear in orientation, we have four major headings that we're going to be looking at this morning they are first Paul's god-centered ministry second in verses 3 and 4 his god-centered motives third his god-centered conduct and fourth his god-centered goal so without further ado let's dive right into his god-centered ministry now when we're reading one of the epistles of Paul we're really reading somebody else's mail of course god had intended For us to read it, right? It's in the New Testament. It is for us. We are the church of God. It does belong to us. But if we don't understand the historical context, we're going to be disconnected somehow from the central message of the text. And so, I'd like us to do a forced march through Acts 16 and 17, so we can get an understanding of what Paul's relationship was with the church in Thessalonica, so that we can come back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and understand what's going on. So with that said, um, I'd I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 16, and we're going to work our way pretty quickly through the end of chapter 17, and excuse me, through the middle of chapter 17, um, and then we'll be ready to return to our text in 1 Thessalonians. So we begin, because Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he begins by making reference to his work in Philippi. So we have to actually start there. That's why we're in Acts chapter 16, and we begin in verse 12. Acts 16, verse 12. Of course, we have to go to verse 11 because we want to start at the beginning of a sentence. So here we go. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas we ran straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. So there they are in Philippi. We know in verses 13 through 15, they go outside of the city to pray. They're looking for a quiet place to pray. And Paul apparently is speaking to the people who are gathered. And a woman is present named Lydia. She's a leading woman of the city. She hears the gospel. She and her whole household are baptized. That takes us through verse 15. In verse 16 through 18, Paul picks up some demonic endorsements. So, this girl, this slave girl, right, who is, is demon possessed and is used for fortune telling, she picks up on Paul, she, her radar, she locks onto him, she begins following him around, right, and endorsing him, demonically, right? <laughs> when you, it would be like Harvey Weinstein, um, using him as a character reference, right? It's, it's not really, very powerful in fact it has a negative effect and paul is getting annoyed Uh, he's getting irritated and so he turns around and you wonder why didn't you just do this at the beginning you know but he turns around and he casts the demon out of her right and now her ability to tell fortunes is gone and her her owners are angry because they've lost a major source of income and so what do they do that brings us to verse 19 through 34. They, um, they seize Paul and Silas and drag them into the marketplace before the authorities. So they're hauling them in. They're taking Paul's message that he was preaching and they're making it into an insurrectionist sermon. So they're twisting his words. This happens. right As a preacher of the gospel... People are going to take the word of God preached. If they don't like it, right? It's it's either going to be transforming them, it's either going to be softening them, or it's going to be hardening them. And if it hardens them, they're going to fight against it. They'll twist the word of God. That's exactly what happens here. Drags them in front of the in front of the magistrate, um, twists the centrality of the message, and um, of course, Paul is thrown into prison, no due process. He's a Roman citizen, thrown into prison, beaten with rods, feet in the stocks. He's suffering for the gospel. We know the next day, of course, the officials are like, "Uh uh-oh, made a mistake. And they try to get him out of there quietly. He says, of course, nothing doing. Um, Come in and, and get us out yourselves, you civil magistrates. And then there we go. That's a crash course on what happened at Philippi. That'll come up here in just a minute. So, verse, excuse me, chapter 17. So, they travel through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they come to Thessalonica, where there is a synagogue of the Jews. So, verses 1 through 3, what does Paul do? He does what he always does. Whenever he comes to a new city... He begins with the covenant people of God, right? And he calls them with the gospel to trust in Messiah. Okay, so he does this for three Sabbaths. Notice verse two. So just three Sabbaths is all the time that he gets. Notice verse three, that the major point that he's addressing at the synagogue is the issue of Christ's humiliation, right? So we have his humiliation, and we have his exaltation, right? Philippians chapter 2. But the issue with the Jews is a crucified, humbled Messiah, right? And so Paul is reasoning with them, making the case that Jesus, the Messiah, had to suffer. And he's showing them from the Scriptures, and he's winning the day. Many Jews come to faith. Many Jews. Verse 4. Some Jews. Many Gentiles. Excuse me. A great multitude of Gentiles. And the Greek says, last phrase, verse 4, not a few of the leading women. So some Jews are coming to faith. Tons of Gentiles, right? Which is going to rankle many of the Jews, the unbelieving Jews. And then, of course, um, leading women are coming to faith as well. Well... If the problem in Philippi was greed, and that's why they got up the mob, here in Thessalonica, the problem was Jewish territorialism, right? Um, lots of people are coming to faith in Christ. Gentiles are being brought into the covenant community. What's with that, right? And they do the same kind of thing. They form a mob. They can't find Paul and Silas, so they settle for their host, Jason, and some of the brethren, drag him in front of the civil magistrate, and they say, those men who have upset the world have come here also. And if you're a civil magistrate, you know, that, that's, uh, those are trigger words, right? Um, bad people, troublemakers have come here also. And so uh, we have a riot and we have all sorts of problems, um, with the result that and again, Paul's words, his preaching is um, twisted. And so once again, Paul has to leave. We see in verse 10 that he does. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. So same thing. So there we have it. We've got a little bit of context. I think we're ready to look at First Thessalonians chapter 2. So <clears throat> let's go there. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Now imagine you're the Apostle Paul, okay? You've just had this amazing ministry in Thessalonica, and you've seen the Holy Spirit move, and you've seen a church arise out of nothing, filled with some believing Jews, a whole bunch of Gentiles who need the Word of God taught to them, and some of the leading women of the city, Right? The baby has been born, but now the mother is being ripped away, okay? You're the Apostle Paul. You you can't help to see this child grow and be strengthened, right? You are taken away. So the the feeling of abandonment must have felt very strong, and yet he knows the sovereignty of God. He sends Timothy later in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2, he tells us that he sent Timothy to check on them. Paul cannot go back. He's he's too high profile, right? But Timothy wasn't part of the problem, so he can send Timothy in under the radar to check on the church. Now notice what Paul says in verse 2 of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, how did they suffer? Physical beating, um, failure to, to uh, adhere to due process, thrown into jail, feet in the stocks, preaching has been twisted and um, maligned, etc. That's how he suffered, okay? Coming right out of Philippi, he comes into Thessalonica, right? And he goes right back to the work of the ministry. So, he appeals to their own experience. In fact, six times in these verses, Paul says something like, you know, right? You recall, you are witnesses, just as you know, right? So he's appealing again and again. Why is he doing all this appealing? Why does he keep bringing things back up? And why is he making a defense? He's making a defense because because even though Paul had departed Thessalonica, the Jews continued to agitate amongst the new believers, slandering Paul and Silas and threatening the work. So Paul might not defend himself if the church was not in danger, but because the church was in danger... He, he's appealing to them. Does what they say about us match your experience? And because of this, we are given a window into Paul's philosophy of ministry that we might not otherwise have. Basically, the Jews who are slandering him are classifying Paul and Silas amongst those wandering itinerant religious kooks that filled the region people going around taking advantage of gullible people right um proclaiming the, the the latest uh religious innovation and they're saying look that's exactly what paul did twice when he was in thessalonica he had received um support from other churches so the money's coming in right when things get rough, what happens with Paul? He leaves, right? So there's the cowardice charge. There's the self-serving charge. There's the money-grubbing charge. And Paul's saying, does this fit with your experience? And then he tr- he, he walks through his um, his philosophy of ministry. So we've seen his ministry... And now let's look at his motives, verse 3 and 4. So what motivated, what moved Paul to do what he did? Was it self-serving, a self-serving kind of money-grubbing thing? Did he want power, right? I mean, false teachers, there's those big three, right? Gold, glory, and girls, right? That, That they go after, right? Gold, money, glory, right? You just, just turn on the television and you can see that. And women, right? Uh, that those are the big three. Is that what Paul was after? What should motivate us as we are engaged in the ministry of the gospel? Paul says in verse 2, But we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know. We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. And this flies right in the face of these charges of being a self-seeking coward, right? If you're seeking your own comfort, why would you put yourself in the way of danger? It makes no sense. Why would you do the very thing that got you beaten and thrown into jail? It didn't work out for you, Paul. People from the outside would say it didn't didn't work out for you. That wasn't very fruitful, but Paul's saying, on the contrary, it was enormously fruitful. Paul was gifted with an unearthly single-mindedness. He had a resilience that must have frustrated and awed his foes. How many times when Paul stepped up to speak to a crowd did the Ju- the Judaizers mutter amongst themselves, I thought he was dead. What happened to him? Where did, how, how could he possibly be here? Didn't we just stone him? They had stoned Paul. They had whipped him. They had beaten him with rods. They slandered him. They followed him around on his journeys to contradict his doctrine to the new churches. But Paul would not go away and he would not give up. He kept coming back. He kept preaching. And he did it despite personal pain and suffering. But if you're a pastor who seeks his own interests, you give up when the suffering begins. (laughs) I'm out of here. (laughs) I didn't sign up for this. When I was in Ethiopia, all all the pastors there of a certain age had been to prison, and those who were who were of that age who had not been to prison, everybody knew were were uh, communist plants or sympathizers. All these guys had been to prison, and one of the guys who uh, one of the guys that drove me to the airport actually had been in prison six times on one day. I was like. <laughs> How do you do that? How can you? (laughs) Why wouldn't they just keep you there? But six times, right? He had been in and out, in and out, in and out um, when the communists were in power. Faithful brothers suffering for Christ. That's what they were, and that's what Paul was. He was not a coward, abandoning the flock when it got dangerous, and he wasn't a con man. Verse 3, For our exhortation does not come from error, or impurity, or by way of deceit, which would mark a con man. Deceit, error, impurity. So remember, if you look, in verse 2, he was speaking the gospel of God. It's the gospel of God. It's not his gospel in, uh, in that he created it. It's God's word that has been entrusted to the minister to bring to the people. In the ministry, there is tremendous pressure to water down the truth of the Word of God. It's just constant pressure to water down the Word. People don't like having their sins called out. They will bring you pain when you do that. If they don't have a soft heart, right? If they've got got a soft heart, they will bring you thanks. (laughs) But if they've got a hardened heart, they will bring you pain. The pagans in Philippi rioted because of greed. In Thessalonica, it was the Jews fearing their loss of power. Today, many come to church because they just want cover. They want to maintain the fiction that they are good people, right? Right? And they'll pay good tithe money just to induce you not to preach the truth quite so openly and honestly, right? There's an unstated agreement between the minister and the people, right? We'll keep coming and keep tithing as long as you don't address this issue so hard. And everybody's got their own. So if you're willing to veer, if you're willing to veer just a little bit, tiny bit, say three degrees off message, you can pack this place out. But we have to resist it. This is not our gospel. This is not our gospel. This is the gospel of God, right? We seek His interests and His glory. And to have a God-centered ministry is to do just that, right? We seek His interests, His glory. And as we seek His interests and His glory, God's people are flourishing. We are messenger boys. Messenger boys don't open the envelope and scribble in their own thoughts in the margins. They deliver the word of God. Philip Brooks reminds us that this requires courage. If you're afraid of men and a slave to their opinion, go and do something else. Go and make shoes to fit them. Go and even paint pictures which you know are bad, but which suit their bad taste. But do not go on all your life preaching sermons which shall say not what God sent you to declare, but what they hire you to say. What keeps us true to our calling? Notice what Paul says in verse 4. Just as we have been approved by God, To be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak. Not as pleasing men. But God who examines our hearts. Approved by God. God sets you into ministry. And he and not the people. Are the ones that you're seeking to please. And as you direct your attentions. To the interests of God. God's people will flourish you want to be fruitful, get your courage from God, get your gospel from God, and get your praise from God alone. God examines our hearts. You'll be misunderstood by God's design as you shepherd real people with real gnarly problems. The congregation are not going to know the facts, because of pastoral discretion. And you're going to be second-guessed. And some are going to look with suspicion because they can only know a little bit. And given what they know, you admit it looks troublesome. But if they knew the whole picture, right? But they can't because you need to protect people's discretion. Discretion. While we should never be cantankerous, we fail people when the goal of our leadership is pleasing them. So we shouldn't set out to be a jerk, you know, and think we're really pleasing God when we irritate and vex those who are under our charge. That's not what he's saying. But we need to have the courage to speak the Word of God, a timely word, at the right moment, to the right person. That word has to be spoken. Now I know I've been called not just to speak to uh, Pastor Sexton but also the congregation. Notice this verse 14 chapter 2, verse 14. "For you brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen even as they did from the Jews. So Paul's saying, "Hey Thessalonians, I realize we suffered. You did not abandon us. You suffered too. Are you willing, as Pastor Sexton is preaching the word and getting to all sorts of trouble because of it? Because he's faithful. Will you suffer with him? Or will he, when he's no longer cool, will you run for the back door? Because it's easy. You didn't sign up for this trouble. We saw his ministry, his motives, God is at the center, right? And now is God-centered conduct. Notice verse 5 and 6. For we never came with flattering speech. As you know, here again, he's appealing to them. Nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. You can't know my heart about greed. But God knows and he'll bear witness. It wasn't about that. Verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. So he's he's explaining his uh, his conduct. He singles out two things. Flattery and authoritarianism as ungodly methodologies in ministry. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. Flattery... is a very fast, easy way for you to get rapport with the sheep, right? It's quick, quick rapport, quick relational closure. You just make them feel good about themselves by telling them lies about themselves, which ultimately will be to their harm. Some people are going to come around who will do anything for affirmation, they need affirmation, and there are reasons for that. We're all coming from somewhere, right? Um, and the and the and the Word of God has a solution for that need. That solution is not flattering that person who needs affirmation. What is the solution to that? It is rather to refer them back to their identity in Christ, right? And that's going to give them true security. People will come around who will do anything for affirmation, even if it's a lie. And they're going to reward you by reciprocating. They'll tell you that they've never heard anyone preach quite like you. Wow. You know, and that starts building up your own little world of flattery in your head. And now you are on very thin ice. You're in trouble. And you can feed off of one another, pastor and congregant. but we know the end proverbs 26:28 says a lying tongue hates those it crushes and a flattering mouth works ruin so i don't want you all to apply this sermon by never saying an encouraging word to someone <laughs> that's please that's not at all there's a huge difference between flattery and encouragement right flattery's motive is manip- is manipulative you're trying to get something out of this person right? You're trading compliments for capital. Encouragement is just a Christian duty. So do that. Don't stop. He needs your encouragement and he needs it often. But he doesn't ever need your flattery. And the same thing goes the other direction. Martin Luther, that that great flatterer, Martin Luther, (laughs) writes this, Whoever wants to do his duty as a preacher and perform his office faithfully must retain the freedom to tell the truth fearlessly, regardless of other people. He must denounce anyone that needs to be denounced, great or small, rich or poor, powerful, friend or foe. Greed refuses to do this, for it is afraid that if it offends the bigwigs or its good friends, it will be unable to find bread. So, greed puts its whistle in its pocket and keeps quiet. So, brother, keep your whistle in your mouth, not in your pocket. Make God your audience, seek his interests and his glory, and God's people will flourish. Boldly preach the word regardless of consequences remembering that as teachers, we will have a stricter judgment. And Saints, just as Pastor Sexton is called to preach God's Word, so follow the example of the Thessalonians in verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the Word of God's message, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God. That's your duty. That is how you encourage your pastor. You want to encourage your pastor? Far more encouraging than compliments afterwards, which are encouraging. Far more encouraging is him watching your lives change as a result of the ministry of the Word when he looks out and he goes, Whoa, they took that seriously. (laughs) Whoa, that is encouraging. We've seen that Paul spoke the word faithfully to the Thessalonians. What was his style? Was he a bombastic, loud, uh, irascible, obnoxious, authoritarian guy who was always beating people over the head? Is that How he ministered, we see just the opposite, verse 6 through 8. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you've become very dear to us. So notice his style. Verse 7. But we proved gentle among you as a nursing mother. So when a pastor wants to know how to treat God's people, all he's got to do is look at his wife, right? The mother of his children, and how she tenderly cares for those little babies that are nursing. That is the kind of tenderness and affection and love that we as ministers of the gospel should have for our people that there should be this tender affection. Notice, men, Paul is not ashamed to use a nursing mother. I don't know if it gets, you can get more feminine than that, right? Than a nursing mother. And he's not ashamed to say, I am like a nursing mother. He's clearly secure in his masculinity. Right, He doesn't need to go out in his lumberjack outfit and chop a bunch of wood to, to feel masculine again. He's, he He understands that this is what God calls him to, this tender love. And following this example means listening carefully and patiently. It means late nights. It means doing what Paul does, imparting his own life. And what does a a nursing mother do but impart her strength in liquid form to another human being, right, to her children? And that is what a a minister of the gospel is doing, is imparting his life, his strength to God's people, to strengthen them. And notice her attitude. She doesn't merely put up with this duty of nursing. She, She doesn't give grudgingly. She's well pleased. She's delighted to give herself to her children. And that is what pastors must do. Impart ourselves gladly to God's people. Not only is Paul mother, he's also father. Notice notice verse 10. You are witnesses and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you As a father would his own children. So Paul is mother. Interesting that he puts that first. He's also father. God God gave us as human beings to need uh, both a motherly and a fatherly influence, right? And there's things that um, my wife will be able to do for our children that I'll just never be able to do. And if I was out of the picture, you know, the wagon wheels would start coming off in some ways because... God has created my children to need a father. Paul is saying he was both to them. How rare it is to have both motherly and fatherly attributes united in one man. And there are many gentle pastors who lack the spine to speak out with boldness. There's also a whole glut of men who can rail from the pulpit, but lack any tenderness towards their people. But God calls pastors to be both, both mother and father. Notice also that he was a blameless example towards God's people. Paul says, you are witnesses and so is God. So what were they witnesses to? They were witnesses to his character. Now notice, this is what blows me away. And I think this is the the big challenge. Paul's there three weeks. Six times in these 12 verses, he says, as you know, as you know, as you recall, as you know, you're my witnesses. He's asking them to bear witness to stuff that really actually takes a long time to know about a person. So what I'm trying to say is notice how open, accessible, vulnerable Paul was. So that he could say with a straight face to these people, "You saw this character in me, and you know you know you saw this. Do don't you remember? In three weeks' time, so many times in ministry, and certainly this is true of me. You're afraid of that First Timothy five, excuse me, First Peter five command that you become an example to God's flock. That actually the fishbowl. Is really a design feature. God wants us to live elders. He wants us to live in the fishbowl. He wants people to see, to see us when we face plant, get up and ask for forgiveness. Right? He, he wants us to be an example. Paul was such an example that in three weeks he's able to say, you know my conduct, you know my motives, you know my ministry, you know my goal. So let's look at that goal. In verse 12 there it is we're talking about a god centered ministry is what makes for fruitful ministry and we see right there that Paul's activity is focused on god's interests and god's glory verse 12 so that so he's exhorting imploring etc as a father would his own children so that that delineates purpose so or goal so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the god who calls you into his own kingdom and glory this is the reason why Paul does everything he does. So that you will grow in maturity up to the calling with which God has called you. That's why we labor and strive. And if you keep that, if we keep that, brothers, as our goal, the maturity of God's people for the, for the glory of His name, we're going to have a fruitful ministry. Spiritual parenting... For that is what pastoring is, has one goal. That God's people would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. That truly is seeking God's interest and God's glory. And this kind of ministry, whether it's three weeks long or 30 years long, will not be in vain. It will not be in vain. It will bear fruit. It will bear lasting fruit. Beloved saints, may God bless and keep you. May God give you many years of faithful, fruitful service together. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you for the grace that you shed abroad in Paul's life so that we could see this example of a man who was transfixed with your glory your kingdom and we pray for pastor sexton and the elders here we pray father that you would grant them similar similar goals similar conduct similar motives that they would live and breathe that they would wake and sleep your glory your interests for the good of your people